Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to Compliance Clarified, a podcast for risk and compliance professionals brought to you by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Each week we discuss news stories and topical issues from our journalists and analysts in the United States, Europe, Asia and Australia. I'm Alexander Robson, Managing Editor at Regulatory Intelligence, coming to you today from London, and I'm speaking with Lindsay Rogerson, Senior Editor, who is at the COP28 conference in Dubai. Welcome, Lindsay. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on the podcast. To kick off the final episode of Series 10, we're going to discuss what's been going on at COP28, otherwise known as the Conference of the Parties and its 28th meeting in Dubai, and more importantly, what it means for financial services firms. So, Lindsay, going into this particular COP, I have to say things didn't look great for the planet. The United Nations assessment of likely temperature rise based on successful delivery of all policies currently in place is around three degrees, well off course uh, from the Paris Agreement's target of keeping warming to 1.5 degrees. How is that focusing minds on the ground in Dubai? Well, Alex, it's certainly led to a flurry of announcements in the first four days. I'll run through some of them in a minute, but what I want to say up front is that what I've definitely seen on the ground here at this COP, um, which is my second because I covered uh, Glasgow two years ago, um, is a huge amount of constructive conversation around how the financial sector can help get that three degree number that you mentioned just a minute ago back on track or down considerably at least. So just to explain a little bit about the weird and wonderful world of a COP to our listeners, as well as the um, UN level negotiations um, that go on here in the Blue Zone, at COPs, each country gets its own pavilion to host um, side events um, that run in conjunction for the two weeks that the um, UN conference is is underway. Um, What I'm seeing in a lot of these uh, country-led events um, is actually makes me quite hopeful, despite what you might be getting on the uh, the non-financial headlines back home. You're really seeing um, that you know financial services um, firms are, are working really hard to deliver the transition. Um, I've spent much of my time here listening to people chart practical solutions in terms of how you deliver um, the volume of money that's going to be needed um, to where it is need- going to be needed. And um, also to put robust framework around that, you know, it's been really encouraging to see some commonality and themes being discussed. So for example, the EU, um, the Spanish, UK and Singapore country pavilions have all held um, panels on transition plans. Likewise, there's been a lot of discussion about carbon credits and nature credits, um, which let's not forget the UN's high-level expert group on climate finance has said we will need um, in a report that was published for COP. Um, if we're, if we're go- not going to fry, um, we will need um, some kind of carbon markets to help get us there. And, and uh, last but not least, um, the regulators are here in force as well. Good. Um, well, you, you mentioned a flurry of announcements. What are the ones that our listeners need to be aware of? Okay, um, I'll start with the loss and damage fund, um, which is, as of this morning, we were told had reached $720 million. Um, that's mostly thanks to two um, 100 million contributions from, respectively, Germany and the United Arab Emirates, our hosts. Um, it is a long way short. I mean, that you have to say that it's a long way short on um, 
the the billions that are going to be needed, but it is still very significant. Um, and I'll quote Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados, um, just to put this in context for our readers. Um, she said this morning, I want to give thanks to those countries that have come in and capitalized the 700 million. She paused and then she said, but let's get real. What she meant by that is that the loss and damage fund is a huge achievement. It's it's only taken 28 COPs to get to this agreement. And the significance of the loss and damage fund is it, it kind of acknowledges that the developed countries' role in where we are now facing climate change. So our de- our development, our industrialization over the last 200 years has, you know, put carbon into the atmosphere and it's and it's caused um damage um in part you know in in the global south etc and so the announcement on the first day of the cop um that the fund had finally been established it really w- is important in terms of getting things moving and getting everybody um feeling like they want to kind of do more so so that's the loss and damage fund next i want to mention the methane agreement the methane pledge Yes, that's that's from 150 countries to reduce their emissions by 2030, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one. Um, this is important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because it buys us a little more time to reduce carbon emissions. Um, basically, methane is um, has a warming potential 86 times that of CO2. That's a little science bit there. Um, so cutting it, it's cutting methane helps slow global warming. But without any action on methane emissions they themselves are scheduled to rise by 13% by 2030. So reducing them is good in and of itself. But the the, the reason I'm highlighting the methane pledge to to our listeners is um, it's a, quite a good example of um, uh, something that uh, people on the ground here and you know people in the run up to this have been telling me is 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 financial services firms that is 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 really needed. Um, so reducing them is good in and of itself, but I want to use the pledge as an example of how agreements can quickly lead to the establishment of monitoring arrangements being put in place um, to keep people honest and also the role for regulation and how it will assist banks and asset managers and insurers. So the methane pledge um, is actually only two years old. It was it was an, it, it was born at COP26 in Glasgow. Um, since then, uh, a global satellite monitoring system, uh, it's called the International Methane Admissions Observatory, for those that want to are particularly interested, has been put in place. So they've quickly got the tools there in place to basically check everybody's, uh, keep people honest. However, the pledge is voluntary, and that's something um, Prime Minister Motley um, criticised this morning. She, she, you know, she, she's keen that this is mandatory. She said that to be effective, global compliance needs to be enforced, and that comes with making it mandatory. But it brings me back to um, what this means for financial firms and their role in the transition. Um, Two weeks ago, the EU passed the first law on methane emissions. Alongside that, it also launched a You Collect, We Pay initiative. So a stick and a carrot, so to speak. As I said a minute ago, this is what firms that I talk to have been asking for. On, On the one hand, concrete rules against which they can measure the corporates they invest in and lend to. And on the other, a financial benefit that they can use to nudge their customers into doing the right thing for the planet. That's interesting. As I know, we cover in our own ESG report uh, how envious a lot of European businesses were of all the carrots available to US-based firms in President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. 
from the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Can we turn to IOSCO's consultation on good practices to promote the integrity and orderly functioning of voluntary carbon markets? Is this another example of regulation being used to facilitate markets? Hopefully. I say hopefully because IOSCO's um, 21 good practices can't hurt. Um, they deal with everything on the financial side of carbon markets. What they don't deal with is the environmental side, because as um, Rodrigo Bonaventura, um, who's the chair of uh, Spain's securities regulator, CNMV, rightfully said at the consultation launch here at COP28 yesterday, he said, you know, securities regulators aren't scientists and checking the environmental integrity of these instruments should be left to scientists. That said, what IOSCO is intending to, to do, and it has taken a lot of thought in the in this process this um it first it there was a consultation 13 months ago and it's um you know so there's a lot of a lot of thought has 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 gone into this and they've also drawn on their experience in in regulating other asset classes and other markets so Many of the 21 um, good practices deal with areas that will be very familiar to our audience, um, such as regulatory frameworks and um, their in international consistency, the skills and competence of market participants, primary and secondary market functioning, governance, risk management, and disclosure. As we reported today, um, Benaventura said that VMCs presented IOSCO with a novel situation in that, and I am paraphrasing him here, Normally, you expect um, regulators to come in after a market is already developed and not to actually put their rules in place before the market is actually developed. But because of the lack of trust, um, which I also identified and which I've reported on before in, in voluntary carbon markets is, is, is so high that in order to get this, this, this market going, which, you know, as I said, you know, the experts here at, at COP say is, is, is going to be needed and we are going to need this market, it's turned things on its head and they are producing regulation or, or putting a framework in, um, in the hope that it will um, help the market to develop. The only other thing I'll say on VCMs, which are a huge focus, as I said, um, in the pavilion events, is that there is a fair degree of amusement in the NGO community um, as to what they see as financial corporate government obsession with using voluntary carbon markets to fund clean tech solutions. Um, even, that's even though to date, clean tech solutions don't work or they work much less well than initially reported. And, and that is not uh, me saying that, that's the International Energy Association saying that. I've seen a lot of presentations and uh, uh, demonstrations of um, nature-based solutions, which um, I hear at COP, and uh, they do have a, a you know a much better track record. Just finally, I mean, I want to touch on one other interesting development that we've also reported on, and that is that we've seen some big asset managers benefit more directly from announcements at COP, haven't we? I'm thinking in particular of. BlackRock and Brookfield, which have been given a slice of the thirty billion uh, announced for uh, a new climate as a new climate catalyst fund. Yes, that's that's right, Alex. The fund is um, is a new one established by the UAE called Altera, 
Um, why this is interesting is because I think it clearly shows that financial firms that kind of walk the talk on climate action are actually now being rewarded. And, you know, that might encourage others to do similar. Um, Brookfield is um, chaired by Mark Carney, of course, who's the former governor of the Bank of England, but perhaps more pertinent to this conversation. He is was a advisor to Boris Johnson for COP26 in Glasgow, and he was a UN special advisor on climate finance. And of course, BlackRock's Larry Fink um, has been an advisor to this COP in, uh, here in Abu Dhabi. Um, the, the announcement awarding the $2 billion to um, to BlackRock specifically referenced the pipeline of products that the fund manager is developing as the reason it was chosen. So that's interesting. I, I guess what I'm I'm saying is, um, for all the talk of ESG of an ESG backlash, especially in the US, a US investment house um, that has invested in building out its expertise in sustainability has been a huge beneficiary here in Dubai. It's far from the only one. Um, the uh, London Stock Exchange Group um, has likewise put a lot of time and money into building its sustainability offering. At, at COP, it signed a deal with the Islamic Development Bank. This was yesterday and um, the International Capital Markets Association. And in time, that should lead to the issuance of uh, green seduks, which of course it will benefit from um, if, they're, if they're done through um, LSEC. LSEC has also been developing a pipeline of carbon investment trusts, which is just truly fascinating. I, I've done an article on this, so I, I won't waste time because time is short um, here and I'll uh, I'll attach my interview with um, LSEC's Adrian Rimmer to the show notes um, for anyone that's interesting. But it's just, um, I'm just using it as an example that like the firms that have actually invested are now seeing that bear fruit um, here at COP28. Well, that's great, Lindsay. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alex. Now, we mentioned uh, on the uh, podcast earlier uh, a report that we have published. This is the ESG Navigating Past the Noise special report, which we've done in conjunction with the Thomson Reuters Institute. It hits the streets today. You can download a copy from the RI pages and from thomsonreuters.com. So that's it for um, this series. Thank you very much for joining us. Your feedback is important to us, so please give us a rating on your podcasting platform of choice, or you may get in touch directly. Our contact details are in the show notes. For more information about regulatory intelligence, please search for Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence or check the show notes for a link. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.